Hey everyone, welcome to the Wild and Uncut podcast brought to you by Ruger. I'm your host, Christy Titus. Thank you for tuning in. The line is going hot, so let's go full send on this episode. Since 1949, Ruger has embodied the spirit of hunting in America. Ruger firearms are built to deliver the reliable and accurate performance that seasoned veterans demand and new hunters can trust. At Ruger, we believe that hunting is about more than just the thrill of the chase. It's about the freedom and opportunity that come with it. This is our heritage, and this is Ruger. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wild and Uncut podcast. We're at the NRA convention at the Ruger booth, and I'm with fellow Ruger ambassador and host of Trailing the Hunter's Moon, Blake Barnett. And um, you have been kind of grandfathered into the Ruger family. I have. At, by Larry Wysoon, which is, we love Larry. Yeah. Larry is the kind of... Uh, He's the godfather the, of the outdoors. I was going to say the kingpin <laughs> of Ruger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right, Christy. And it's an honor to um, follow in his footsteps. He's blazed a trail for me throughout my entire career. For and, a lot of people, actually. And for a lot of people, yes. Yeah, yeah. So my background, you know, is spending about 15 years with Larry as... Mm-hmm his cameraman, as his then producer, as then a co-host of, you know, Trailing the Hunter's Moon, which mm-hmm. is um, after a book that he won a bunch of awards with to um, inheriting the the show and the series basically from him. And Is that yeah. been like no pressure? I've got to try to fill the shoes Holy of Larry Wysoon. Like no, no, no pressure at all there. Like seriously, the <laughs> Lots man of is, pressure. Like, is you know, a legend. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I think at the most pressure I've ever had on my career, it's been about we're going on year four since I've uh, inherited yeah. that. And, you know, you never know what that, how that's going to be received. You know, yeah. I, I honestly felt like I was overwhelmed with the opportunity, you know, I definitely was scared that I had to keep up with it and and scared of how it was going to be received. And we're going into season 18, you know, and, and you being an entrepreneur yourself, you think of all the things you've done and, you know, you've been a part of other shows, other organizations yeah. where you were co-hosting and then you step out on your own and you think I'm going to start a new brand. Should I do that? Or am I, am I you know, you have that. I kind of want to do that, but my gosh, this brand is so big, but I'm not Larry Wysoon, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Are you saying you don't but, shoot a number one? Oh, I shoot a number <laughs> one, and I collect a number one. And I and jealous. And Larry and I are probably both jealous over our own collection, which yeah. collections that we both have. But, no, um, people still watching, yeah. you know? People still vote on the digital awards, and, um, you know, I'm – I believe in your own authenticity, and, and uh, so I don't try to be Larry. I hope people don't judge me that way. But um, Well, and, you you know, I think it's important that we all are our own unique individual. Absolutely. Like, you bring strengths to the table that maybe were weaknesses of Larry. Not that Larry has any weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the man is brilliant. I mean, he's a wildlife biologist. He knows everything about plants and ecosystems and 
Um, I mean, he just, he is just a fantastic human, wonderful brand ambassador. Um, And yeah, but you are equally, you know, as incredible. So in in your own rights. Yeah. Well, you are too, you know, been met you through Larry and through, um, you know, the Ruger ambassador team that you've been a part of. And I, um, you know, this is year three for me. So I still feel like a new kid on the block there, you know, following. I do too. Following, you know. A legend that you've created in yourself and a legacy that you have, have uh, started for, for women in the outdoors and in the shooting because you, you cover so many spectrums. And, uh, you know, I started back 20 years in this business, you know, with Larry before there was all the digital stuff, you know, yeah. to see these new media outlets come on um, board and see what you've done for the industry. Yeah, honored to work with you. So. Yeah, it's been it's been a great ride. So walk everybody through kind of a day in a life of you. Yeah. So what does that look like, man? You know, I think I said it in the in the team meeting we had before the NRA show started. I'm kind of this cowboy gypsy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I uh, born and raised in Texas, uh, professional horseman before I went into the media world. He still has a stallion that's over 30 years old. 32 years old and uh, lives with my mom. Um, Not in the same house. You know, his name <laughs> His name is Vested, so yeah. I guess he's made a vested interest in his own life to live that wow. long and looks phenomenal. Yeah, professional horseman, um, grew up in the, in the horse world, um, you know, competition, uh, trained professionally for the AQHA, yeah. hauled a lot, uh, showed in the open divisions as a professional, but hauled and trained for a lot of youth and amateur and non-pro riders um, all the way to a world level, you know, showed nationally, mm-hmm. so... A lot of respect for what you do with your horses and mules. That's what I love I about it. I only have one horse, <laughs> singular, and he's ancient. He's now 21. I got him yeah. when he was one. Yeah. Um, and he's been my buddy for 20 years, you know. Yeah, they and are. They're yeah, family. They are They're family. family. But um, a hunter all my life. A yeah. hunter, you know, since, um, you know, I can't. my dad probably started taking me when I was four or five. I shot my first white-tailed deer when I was seven. And, um, you know when you go through life and you become independent, you know, my, my work, you know, as a professional horseman was to save money to take a, a hunting trip somewhere once a year. And that, that's where I started getting into my international hunting roles. Yeah. I started to hunt internationally and that was my vacation for the year. And, yeah. and um, you know, through the, through the professional equine industry, you know, we used a lot of video and media to sell very expensive, you know, horses, you know, horses that, we sold for well into the six figure, you know, level. And we used, I've uh, got a bunch of those. Yeah. Used, used video to market that stuff. Yeah. And so when I started doing my, um, you know, my, my international hunts, I took cameras with me, you know, and I was like, God, I love this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, I believe, I believe, you know, good man, good lord up above really watches us all the time mm-hmm. and he puts he puts us in places where things present themselves and uh, actually had a family friend um you may remember him or, uh, that was in the industry for a good while from texas as well mr kim hicks had no. a magazine in texas called the texas hunting directory okay and when outdoor television kind of really first hit the scenes big espn those networks back in the day um those a lot of those magazine holders were giving up their magazines to go kind of into television yeah and i had a couple horse accidents and had one really bad one 
and that I had took me about three months to recover from. And once I was able to uh, get back on a horse, the first one I got all tripped and fell and rolled over me. Oof. So again, again, I think somebody was trying to tell me something. Yeah. I was like, I need to do something different. So I it was a very hard decision to make and met with all my clients and had to tell them that I needed to needed to focus on a, a healthier lifestyle yeah. where I wouldn't be crippled the rest of my life. And and uh, I just walked away from it. And people couldn't believe it. And um, But a door opened up for, for me through Kim Hicks, and I mm -hmm. went to work for him uh, to learn how to field produce with a camera. I was already pretty savvy around some video equipment. just with. And our, Blake's a big guy. But he had a camera that had six-pound batteries, okay? Yeah, let's Like, I mean, you take a waist belt full of six-pound batteries. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, back in the day. Yeah. I mean, You're like, I was a much younger man then. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I struggled. I mean, the cameras were 30, 35 pounds. The tripod head was 30 pounds, you know? Uh, battery belts, you know, and big cassette tapes that you could only get 15 minutes at a time. So you had to carry a backpack full of tapes to film for the day, you know? And so... It was one thing if you sat in a deer blind or sat on the ground, but if you had to hike, yeah, Larry, Weissing took, Larry Weissing took me to Saskatchewan, Canada, and we were in the hills hunting white-tailed deer, and there was thick alders and stuff, and he, Larry likes to walk and move, and we started up this one hill, and I mean, that white-tailed deer hunt felt like a sheep hunt for me, carrying all this stuff, and I, oh, finally, yeah. I finally had to grab him by the collar and was like, here, you carry this tripod. If this is where we're going to go, <laughs> you or carry this. Or can you please slow down? <laughs> yeah. But it's amazing with today's equipment. We yeah. talked about that already. I mean, the cameras are this big now, yeah. and affordable, and... And, uh, so, and yeah. the, the quality, even just off of our phones, oh, yeah. is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, so I, I worked through those whole years, you know, uh, for lots of different productions uh, as a field producer. Larry Weissing and I worked as a team for Winchester World of Whitetails, yeah. which was, I think, probably the staple of what really branded Larry as a TV personality. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it was an award-winning show, <laughs> um, very well-sponsored, and... Um, that, I think, is what really kicked off mine and Larry's relationship and my career from a recognizable standpoint to be able to do more for other production companies as mm -hmm. a freelance field producer. And that evolved into Larry and I one day saying, you know what, let's, instead of working for these other production companies, let's... Let's do our own. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of my idea. Were you with Trailing the Hunter's Moon from year one? As from a field year, producer? From year one. So it was wow. it was my idea. I didn't realize I'll that. I'll be honest okay. with you, but Larry will tell you, it's, it was my idea because I was like, Larry, you know, I mean, I, we were jumping around, you know, getting Larry was getting these different offers. They were all great offers. Yeah. They were great series. But, you know, it wasn't his. And I'm like, you Let's need your own. own our and own I was like, brand. You, you, wrote, you, you wrote this book. It won a bunch of awards. You know, it, it sold lots of copies. And I was like, it's, it's appropriate. People back then... Didn't re they? They labeled Larry, and he's still labeled that way today as Mr. Whitetail, right? Oh, 100 percent. But Larry has haunted the world, literally, and that's what this book was about—was to kind of tell another side of him. And yeah. So we went to all the partners. You know, we went to Ruger, we went to Hornady. Um, there were some other partners that that were involved in the beginning, like Zeiss, and everybody loved the idea. And um, I'm, th I'm going to say that was nine years ago. Yeah. And we're here today. Yeah. You know, and uh, Larry's slowed down, moved closer to be with his family. Mm -hmm. um, he's not traveling as much. Riding is 
writing more probably now. Oh, I'm sure. And still very active and, um, you know, here we are. We're doing it. So 18 years you've been every step of this trail. Uh, 20 now. Yeah. I'm 48 and I started at, tw at 28. I said I got to do something different. At 28. That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. The, I was 27 when I started full-time in the outdoor yeah. industry as well. Like yeah. professionally doing various things. And yeah. I've done a lot of things um, from retail sales and sure. clothing and textile to, to where, we're at, where I am today. And so it's, it's we, we were at the same point. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting how we've all evolved through this, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, even just I think people look at all of us as... TV personalities, digital influencers. There's a lot more I know you do, and there's a lot more that I do behind the scenes. You know, <coughs> conservation and hunter yeah. advocacy have become big passions and missions of mine. I know is of yours as well. Yeah. And and in today's crazy world we're living in, there seems to be, I feel like more we have to do mm -hmm. there, even to make our own consumers and our own hunter fellow hunters aware of um, pressures that are that are encroaching more and more each year. Yeah. There are a lot of Americans that understand the value of hunting, but we all know that right now, national support of hunting is extremely volatile. It seems that with every passing day, our voice is diminished and the court of public opinion is not effectively hearing our side. We need advocates working on our behalf in Washington, D.C. to defend our freedom to hunt. And thankfully, when we need it the most, we have that advocate in Safari Club International. SCI's world headquarters are located in Washington, D.C., just blocks from the United States Capitol, which means that SCI is on the ground with our congressional leaders and federal agencies on our behalf, on behalf of the hunting community. SCI has an active political presence in all 50 states through their extensive chapter network and government affairs staff. If you have ever wondered why you should be a member of SCI, you shouldn't wonder anymore. Join us in the fight to defend hunting. Go to safariclub.org to learn more. You just did a really incredible, like, well, it's tied with the second highest fundraising pro net producer in conservation history. So we have the first, uh, the number one would be the mule deer hunt that sold at the MDF banquet this yeah. year. It went for 725000 There was an Antelope Island mule deer hunt that sold this year yep. for 500000 Yeah. But you did something that nobody's ever done which is a non-hunt conservation fundraiser that netted five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that was, you know, hunters. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah. So, going back again to what I just said about you and I trying to be the voices and sounds to make raise awareness of to our own fellow hunters and to people in the shooting community that. Um, I feel like we have to do more. And yeah. We have to think outside the box. You know, from the hunting side. You know, we, we get a lot of scrutiny. We got a lot of fingers pointing at us. And uh -huh. I think that we all even f um, are at fault for pointing fingers back. You know what I mean? And we have to have a narrative and blend a narrative to make people, I think, understand truly how is how are we the conservationists? Because we, what do we do? We go out there and shoot things when you yeah. just look at a media side, you know. 
or look at social media, you know, and just see well, pictures. Well, the story you know. is not taught. I mean, hunters are, do a rel- relatively poor job of explaining how hunting is right. conservation. And, and even a lot of hunters don't understand how they're funding how the funding work conservation that's right so what i did was um i've been i've been tied to um international hunting organizations throughout my 20 years dsc dallas safari club Mm -hmm. being the main one and uh, they do amazing work they have done great things for years they they spend a lot of money um especially on the international platform of hunting you know anti-poaching is a big thing in africa that they Mm -hmm. fund um, but they work, you know, in Washington as well and, and um, advocate, you know, hunter advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, right here in North America. They fund a lot of North American wildlife projects as well. But I met a gentleman from South Africa, Mr. Vaughn Rippon, owner of Buffalo Kloof Conservancy. Which, by the way, <laughs> he and I have brother dogs. Our Ridgebacks are full brothers. That's crazy. Like I walked by his booth at SCI, no, at Sheep Show a couple years ago. And I was like, why do you have a picture of my dog on your booth? He's like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And they're brothers. That's amazing. And so now when he talks about his dog's personality traits and I talk about my dog, I'm like, oh, we have the same dog. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable. So now I love him by default (laughs) because our dogs are brothers. And actually I want to go there and hunt with him just because I want to see his dog. And you have to go see this conservancy. So I, I met him in 2020. But yeah. 2019, he, he was responsible for the largest ever translocation of black rhinos. And it was pretty well privately funded by him. And I was like, why is this story not being told? Like, what? You're, you, yes. you were responsible for the largest? And he's like, and uh, he's been a very successful businessman in, in South Africa. But when he did that, and he translocated him and moved him to his preserve, which is a hunting preserve as well yes which goes to show you how hunters are conservationists he's trying to aid in a, a horribly imperiled species yeah. not even with the intention of hunt yeah but with the intention of this is good for the wildlife and the landscape and it's the right thing to do it's and he right has the means to help he had the means to do it and it rec- you know and it got recognition from either you know from from non-hunting organizations as well like yeah like wwf which yeah you know, receives most of their funding from not groups that are not going to support hunting. But, yeah, non-hunting. you know, he was able to make them listen to say, listen, it's going to be a hunting property or hunting preserve that is going to be able to protect these, this endangered species. Mm-hmm. One, because we hunt on this property. So, you know, it's a higher risk for the poachers to come in and try to come into a property where... You have armed guards, basically. That's right, and there are people hunting on and it And we all day. know an armed citizen is a safer citizen absolutely so fast forward you know covid hit we got to this year and i i met with him in um at the dsc convention in january and to add to the to it i i serve and uh, and was one of the founders of one of the chapters dsc south texas based out of san antonio texas okay. which i'm that's where i'm from and i went to him with an idea that you know it was a it was a custodianship idea I said, you know, I know that Ms. Drippin is planning another translocation, hopefully to take place this year. It will be the second largest one and quite possibly the last one ever for the black rhino. And I just started thinking outside of the box, and I went to him and threw the idea of a custodianship of a, of a rhino, you know, not to ever be hunted. But if it raised a lot of funds, it could go towards more land expansion habitat expansion Mm -hmm. maybe security maybe that security being in you know transmitters or collars or beacon towers 
or even to go towards funding the next translocation. And I think he looked at me like, can you really do this? Or, I mean, I love the idea, but kind of like, can this you really know. be happen? Can this really happen with a non-hunting? Yeah, scenario? And, and my fundraiser um, was four months away, and, and uh, I went and got the president of the chapter and a fellow director, brought them to the booth, and I think even they were thinking, one, I don't know if this is possible. Do you really think you can do this? And yeah. Warren said, "I'll do it." We left the meeting, and the president of DSC South Texas said look, this must be your wheelhouse because I don't know how to put this together. So yeah. I said, let me do it. Will you let me do it? I don't want any other board to interrupt me, you know, member. I want this to be quiet too because it had never been done before. I didn't want the idea to be stolen. And it was either going to work or it was going to fail. And I was just going to take on that responsibility. And April 1st was our fundraiser. I had worked very hard for those four months to kind of organize and look for people that I thought this would catch the attention of, caught the attention of some folks, had them come in. Going into the event, I knew I was going to at least meet a goal, which was 100000 Yeah. I knew I knew we were going to, and that is big. I don't care for a chapter, it's huge. And even for the parent organizations, that's big for an auction item to bring six figures. Six figures is a big number. And it brought $500,000. Unbelievable number. And so it broke a Like history. I said, it's the, it, for a non-hunting, Yeah, it's the highest grossing fundraiser. Highest grossing fundraiser. The most money ever raised for rhino conservation. Um, it was a non-hunting item, like you said. Mm -hmm. It was raised at a hunting organization. And to, what that did was show... The world. The world. That hunters care about our wildlife and hunters care about wildlife habitat. We care about endangered species, and that sustainable utilization is going to be the future of wildlife and a massive booming population, the country growing in population, yeah. and that needs to be understood mm -hmm. first and foremost. I mean, and it's not just wildlife, it's marine life that's even threatened, yeah. you know, and that's because we, we consume it. It's a resource. We eat it, and, you know, I caught, some, I caught some slack saying, oh, you know, we're a little concerned, you know, custodianship, wouldn't that be humanizing a wild animal? And I'm like... It's going to be humans that are going to be the only custodians of yeah. our. They, we are the only custodians we are the of our custodians wildlife. Of you wildlife. know, so these animals were not—they're not being captured and put in a pen. You know, Mr. Warren's conservancy is seventy thousand acres mm -hmm. of the best habitat for black rhino. You know, so they're not being put in small pens and raised like cattle. Cattle. You know, they're still very wild, and uh, but. Something had to be done. I mean, 70% of the rhino population just in Kruger National Park has been poached. Mm -hmm. You know, I did a podcast for Blood Origins, our friend Robbie Kroger, mm -hmm. you know. The day I did that, two rhinos were poached. Actually, three. It was two cows and a calf, 15 kilometers from Mr. Rippon's property. And the calf survived. They shot the calf three times. But we had to rush through and do our podcast then because Miss Rippon had to get in a helicopter, you know, to look for the poachers. I mean, it's a, it's a real crisis. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, I hope that that message spreads back home here too, yeah. to just the stewardship of who we are, landowners, uh, hunters, that we, we care about wildlife. And that's a passion of mine now yeah. is to spread that message. I still have to pinch myself. I can't believe we did what we did. Yeah. But it's proven that we can do it. 
you know, and it's catching the attention here at NRA. And it's uh, I've already mm -hmm. spoke to some other foundations who are wanting to um, spread that message about how everybody that walks through these doors, even competition shooters, are a part of conservation. Well, they are because the manufacturers, firearms manufacturers, ammunition manufacturers, are the ones ultimately paying yeah. the tax for Pittman Robertson That's dollars. Right. And, and so shooting sports enthusiasts, obviously, uh, Second Amendment advocates are buying and, and using firearms um, for plinking, for personal protection, for whatever reason, at a greater rate than hunters even yeah. buy hunting rifles. And so really the lion's share of conservation is, is done through through the purchase of legal transfer yeah. of firearms. And yeah. a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, the legal transfer of firearms has really trans transformed the landscapes of our country yeah. since the 1930s when when the North American model was enacted. That's and right. um, and it has been ultimately the most successful model in the world because we have a great way to generate revenue. That's right. Other countries have tried to replicate the model and it is very difficult because they don't have a revenue stream to attach to. Um, and and in, in the capacity that we have in the United States, because most countries don't have the firearms freedom that we yeah. have in the United States. I mean, it's sad to say that. Yeah. Um, and so with that, hunting becomes an economy of its own that yeah. creates a value for wildlife, which funds and fuels the work that needs to be done in these other countries yeah. for conservation work, for anti-poaching efforts. Yeah, and, and something I forgot to mention too, we gave 100% of that money to Buffalo Cleave yeah. for their efforts. Yeah. We didn't retain it as a nonprofit, as a 501c3, as, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't we didn't even keep, DSC Foundation, the way the chapter programs work for, for DSC is, they, they received 20%, mm -hmm. actually 25. And I went to the foundation president and uh, DSC Foundation allows their chapters to choose where they would like for their funds to be distributed. And I went to, um, the DSC Foundation president, and I said, our chapter has a request, and that is we would like to be able to make the announcement live, no matter what this item brought, because I didn't know then, you know, that we gave 100% back to that conservancy. We had Mr. Rippin come into San Antonio, Texas, and graciously they supported us with that, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so, I mean, my hat's off to them for, for allowing their mm -hmm. chapter programs to do that mm -hmm. because that was a lot of money, which 20% of 500000 is, is a, a lot, lot of, of money. money. And they, too, you know, so DSC, DSC Foundation. Contributed. Contributed 100%. And um, that's, uh, so, I want, I want, you know, that needs to be understood, too, yeah. out there in the world. I know some people think of fundraisers as, oh, you know, where does the money truly go? Mm. It was a 100% donation we gave back right there that night in San Antonio, Texas. So, um, <coughs> but yeah, uh, special to be a part of it. And it I, is special to be a part I, of I it. I hope it's a, I mean, I'm, it's a, to me, it's a legacy that has been created for Buffalo Kloof and even for conservation. And, and um, my focus is to do more of that type of work mm -hmm. going forward. I mean, I I've hunted the world. I've gotten to do a lot, you know, and there's a lot I still want to do, but yeah. um, I hope we can blaze a trail and raise more awareness and get more hunters to support these organizations that are doing the right things mm -hmm. for the right reasons. Yeah, well, I mean, you think about, you know, we talked about Pittman Roberts and dollars and where those come from and, and then, you know, how hunters 
fuel state economies for conservation through the tags and licenses, the purchase and acquisition of tags and licenses, and, and that equates to 75% of local budgets right. statewide. Right. But then hunters do this other thing, and it's a really great concept. It's called capitalism and yeah. free markets. Yeah. <laughs> and Amen. it's something that we participate in. So not only are we contributing with PR dollars mm. through firearms and ammunition, and then now we have the Dingell Johnson Act, which mm -hmm. is for fishing. Um, and, and it actually works, uh, the PR dollars go through archery as well now. Mm -hmm. um, so not only do we do that, not only do we are we contributing to conservation through statewide tag and licenses, but we, we, we believe in free market conservation principles. Right. And we do a step beyond those two things uh, by participating in free market conservation groups like DSC, SCI, RMEF. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. bunch of them out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we contribute large monetary funds. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, a lot of times you'll go to a banquet and, you know, you'll see a sheep hunt or something sell for four or $500,000. Right. And a lot of people are like, man, that's so out of reach now. You know, I'll never be able to afford to buy a sheep tag or I can never afford yeah. to do this. And the word never comes into mind. And it's actually the opposite, which should come to mind, mm -hmm. is that because of these people, they're funding the the collaring work, the mm -hmm. habitat improvement work, mm -hmm. the whatever work needs to be done, combating invasive species of, of plant life even, <clears throat> because of these people having the ability and the generosity to give through these organizations and to these organizations, uh, they have operating funds to increase wildlife yeah. populations, which in turn provides opportunity for the average person. That's right. And you take, um, there's a there's a really great ranch in Colorado, the River Canyon Ranch owned by Bobby Hill. And he took a, a band of wild sheep and reintroduced them onto his private ranch. And within five years, they had a huntable, huntable population. population of wild sheep. And they work with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and they issue um, public tags. So they get some tags that they can sell to help fund their yep. their, their ranch management and, yep. and habitat programs on the private ranch. But then also, they open that up to the public. Yep. Um, and, and those tags are given to the public. So when the public, you know, 10 years ago never had this opportunity, now they do. And so we're all benefiting. Uh, right. The wildlife is benefiting. The habitat is benefiting. And, and so because these people are spending this money, um, we're all benefiting. And if you don't have money to spend, that's okay, too. And that's okay, too. You it's show up at the banquet. You buy raffle tickets. You go to dinner. You do right. a work project. Buy a membership. Buy a membership. Do a work project. You know. If you, there's so many different ways to contribute. And, and everything give. you just said, it costs lots, lots of, of money. money. And and we need mm. to be grateful for those people who are have those resources yeah. to do what they do. Because that's the future of that's right. being, just like you said, you know, that, that, that ranch that established that population. Oh God, there's no telling how many hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. that cost. And, um, you know, there's no telling how many millions of dollars Mr. Rippon has spent. Yeah. You know, to do what he's done in Africa. But that's happening here in North America. Um, you know, I think it's important to know, too, that, you know, majority of the hunters we have globally are right here in North America. Yeah. You know, the percentage of those hunters here in North America, the percentage that hunt internationally, are v it's very, very, very small. Yeah. So the majority of our hunters here 
I think don't pay attention nor I don't want to say don't care, but because they don't hunt internationally or it they doesn't don't hunt affect globally, them so they turn a blind eye. Exactly. Until it's in their backyard. But it's and so, until it's knocking on their back door. That's right. And it is now. It's starting to, right? You know? I was looking I was watching some stuff on social media last night after the uh, dinner, the NRA ILA dinner we were all at about these winter storms that are taking that Terrible. are taking effect. And I was watching you're from Wyoming. You live in Wyoming now. Yes. Holy cow, I did not realize the impact. The impact. What's happening to the pronghorn antelope and the mule deer over there. That's right. It's terrible. You know, and, and, and I'm reading I'm comments. E- I'm, I'm not even comments. antelope hunting in Wyoming this year. I'm going to New Mexico. I hope that they do something. Yeah. And I'm reading I'm reading comments and some people are pointing fingers and I get it, you're entitled to an opinion, you know, and everybody's feelings are validated. That's the wrong approach, too, yeah. you know, as a hunter-conservationist. You know, Mother Nature can be just awful cruel. And, and very cruel, and that's what's happened there. Hey, you guys, if you're like me, you are totally dependent on OnX Hunt for nearly everything from hunting, navigating backcountry roads, even real estate. But being an elite member with OnX has so many benefits that you guys are going to want to take advantage of if you're not already doing so. For example, you're going to have access to all 50 states plus Canada with tons of valuable resource, landowner information, and you're also going to get added benefits like draw odds with top rut that will help you with all of your application seasons and benefits through hunting fool magazine and to boot you guys they've got tons of great specials through partners like silencer central where if you're an on x elite member you really benefit from those partnerships so if you guys aren't a member i encourage you go online to the on hunt website use code wild 20 at checkout and you're going to save 20 percent you're going to love being an Onyx Hunt Elite member. I watched a video last night where some people in Wyoming watched a herd of bull elk. They were all carrying antlers. The last elk jumped a fence and he was so worn from the winter, he entangled in the fence, ripped off one of his antlers and laid there on the ground. Inevitably, without human intervention, probably would have laid there and died. And some passers-by went, and they untangled the bull elk from the fence. He jumps up, and there's another fence. He hits the next fence to jump again, so weak. Can't do it. Well, no, this was actually in Utah. I take that back. This happened in Utah. Hits the next fence, falls again, and there's people in their car that, that are taking this video that were laughing. And they're like, oh, ha, ha. I hope he breaks his neck on the next one, on the next fence. I'll laugh if he breaks his neck. Yeah. Horrifying to me. Where, horrifying to me. Horrifying where, where to are me. The, where are the people that are against us as hunters? Because I can promise you what cattle rancher could af- that could afford it yeah. or what rancher in those, in those regions that have been impacted by this awful late winter or Horrible very winter. cold spring are feeding wildlife too. Absolutely. You know, I, I, being in Texas, we've been in a horrible drought. You know, and I lease a ranch, and um, I've spent more money this year. This year, having to feed my deer. Yeah. We had zero uh, fawn survival rate this year yeah. because well, that's the what they're was predicting so in in um, and um, in I had to feed them. They had nothing to eat. Yeah. You know, and uh, 
you know, those people that you're referring to that were laughing or making those videos, where's their contribution coming from? Well, the people that are, they are were against sitting us. in their car watching this poor animal yeah. without even opening a car door. And, and there luckily was other people there that were on site that after the bull entangled in the second fence, they went and helped him out of it. And apparently they've been watching the herd now and he's still alive. He, and good. hopefully with warmer weather, he will make it yeah. praying. But, you know, last week my parents' employee had an antelope laying in their field, right in the same field as my mules. And he's laying out there and they're watching him and an eagle was eating it alive. Yeah. And the antelope was so weak from the winter, he couldn't get up. So he was laying there, the eagle's eating him alive. They call Fish and Game, Fish and Game come out and they put the antelope down and they allowed... Uh, my parents' employees to keep the remaining quarters, mm -hmm. and they did actually take some um, some of the stomach and ribs because they had a, a a pair of juvenile mountain lions that they were observing that were starving, and so they were baiting these. The fishing game was had been baiting using some yeah. meat to bait these juvenile mountain lions yeah. that were were really struggling with the winter as yeah. well. So they did take some of it. The antelope was not wasted. But, I mean, these animals are so weakened by this winter to lay there and be eaten alive. Yeah, I, I can't even fathom what they've been through. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Yep. Um, and and as hunters, it is the worst thing you see. I mean, we're seeing videos coming out of Wyoming right now where the snow is melting. And as the snow melts, you just see 20 or 30 antelope being revealed under the snow that just laid down and couldn't get out. That's what I was looking at last night. Yeah. And um, it's devastating. And that, and that goes to show just what you're talking about as a hunter yourself and a conservationist and myself that, you know, placing a value on this wildlife is yeah. what's going to save the wildlife. And it's no different. And I tell this to people all the time. It's no different than domestic wildlife. Yeah. Our cats, our dogs, you, you have... You have dogs, you have horses, you have mules. You have them because there's a value to them. Yeah. You know, there's there's an emotional value to them. Um, you know, the, the domestic animals, there's a, there's also a resource mm -hmm. to them as far as like our cattle and our swine and our chickens and, and our turkeys and all that. You know, we are, that's a that's providing a, a natural resource and source of food to them. And so therefore we, we take care of them right we yeah. raise them we feed them we take care of them because they help us survive too and so it all goes hand in hand yeah you know and it, that message is lost in our inner cities because of I think human population explosion and it's not people are forgetting about our lifestyle people are forgetting about how those grocery stores well, they're so you know, removed from the process of harvesting. Of all of it, you know. and um, All they see is like this plastic wrapped <coughs> piece of meat and they don't realize. And yeah. I don't think most children realize no. that grow up in that environment that that was actually associated. When you say chicken. Right. But if it, we didn't need it. That it comes from a chicken. <laughs> if we didn't need it, we would have it. Yeah. Right? And so. Which is why the local war movement is so powerful, I feel yeah. like. Um, and farm to table and you know, consumption of wild game, um, I think is being looked at in a different manner now, especially when we start to really dissect agricultural and um, practices of, you know, modern production. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to poo-poo any practice that anybody's doing because we're all trying to do the best we can That's to make right. a living or, you know, in generate um, a good product for That's consumers. Right. But for me personally, I love that I open the freezer and I have a memory with my meal. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
you know, and, and and I know, oh, I just didn't run down to the old grocery. And I can take and, care of myself. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But we do also have to be stewards of wildlife. That's and I right. think that like this year, for example, in Wyoming, they're already, you know, proposing cutting back massive amounts of hunting opportunities. So. And as a hunter, that's great. I'm happy yep. to see that. I'm not going to hunt antelope in my own state this year. One of the reasons I moved to Wyoming is, oh, I can hunt antelope every year. Yeah. This isn't the year to hunt them. Not, they need yep. a break. We had a really bad EHD um, outbreak last year, and the, the the deer and the antelope were already suffering from that yep. in our area. I'm going to New Mexico. Yeah, I'm going to you know, go to a different area, hunt a different species, and that's what hunters do. We really, we really pull behind these animals and want to see them have yep. a great – that's right. I mean, Texas too. I mean, you know, I lease a ranch, and <coughs> our deer densities in most of Texas are very, very high. You know, South Texas particularly, yeah. where I'm at, we have a very large deer density. Um, you know, and and it, with the drought, one of the worst droughts I've seen. You know, living in Texas for 48 years yeah. now. Um, you know that normally every year we we set a quota. Um, you know, on how many bucks and does we're going to take. Yeah. We, for years, have always taken more does than bucks just to keep a, an even ratio and to improve genetics. And this is on free-range country. But this year, we, we cut our doe uh, quota way back, way, way back, simply because of um, the zero fawn survival rate. You yeah. know, because we'll see a generation gap from that. That's right. You know, in five years, we're going to go, wow, we're There's not going to have this age class of yeah. deer. And uh, so very, being very mindful of that um, as a conservationist and even as a hunter, you know, yeah. that this year we, uh, we shot older buck. We always shoot older bucks. We always look for deer that are six years of age and older. In Texas, we're able to do that because yeah. of our deer density compared to other regions across the nation. But, you know, this year we really just, we, we had a lot of our bucks went downhill. They regressed, I would say, 25, 30%, not only just in antler development, but body weights as well. And yeah. so it wasn't their year, yeah. you know, and um, we fed them, we took care of them, we did everything we could to keep them alive, and and uh, that's what we did, you yeah. know, and we took some older deer that were way past their prime, yeah. you know, um, that still eat just as good. And, um, and that's one of the beautiful things that sheep hunters are really good at, too, right. is exactly. they really harvest that upper echelon of age class, and, and most... Uh, reputable outfitters will have a harvest objective of 10 years and older because after a sheep hits the t age of 10, their chance of survival every year diminishes and it, it starts at that 10% yeah. and it goes down from there. And so yeah. they're, you know, this, this word of like trophy hunting is so stigmatized when it really oh, yeah. should be selective hunting. Mm -hmm. Like we're selecting an animal based on his life cycle contribution and selective hunting is a way, you know, Jason Matzinger just did a really cool film called Selective mm -hmm. where he really talks about you know, people wanting to, I mean, trophy hunting has this horrible stigma to it. Horrible. But if you were to say, no, I'm selectively harvesting, and people are like, well, what does that mean? Uh, and it begs a question instead of an, an, an a media-driven negative response. 100%. And I think, to me, trophy, the word trophy, is in the eye of every hunter. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Um, that trophy, you made a point a minute ago, when you open up that freezer and that memory that it brings that's you, right. that's the trophy. Yeah. In my eyes, and so selective—that's a great word. I did, that's a, and that's a that's a great word to continue to use going forward. Selective hunting, mm -hmm. you know. In Europe, the age they class. have they have uh, massive populations of moose in Sweden, and their part of their selective hunting is harvesting of of calves. 
of calf moose. And to me, it blows my mind. Yeah. But they, they'll harvest a calf and leave the cow. Yeah. And so they have a different type of selection that they use in different harvest objectives than, you know, maybe traditional here in the United States. But, you know, a lot of places have some sort of model that they're adhering to for sure. conservation of wildlife. Sure. And, um and it, and it really needs to go back to hunters are ultimately responsible for our wildlife because we're funding it, we're fueling it, we're driving it. Um, anyway, we could go on for about this we for could. an hour. Uh, I want to talk with you about some of your Ruger favorites, though. What's that? What are your, some of your favorite rifles? What do you some like shooting? Yeah, rifles. I want to oh know. Gosh. What are some of your Ruger, like, what is your go-tos when you are hunting? <clears throat> I'm traditional. I'm old school. I love the older cattle. He's old school, but not old. Okay. I'm not old. <laughs> you know, I, I've, um, I have, a, I have a, a, an appreciation for all the new um, wildcat cartridges that everybody's producing these days, but okay. I still love the traditional. I love the old 30s, you know, the, the 308, the 30-06, the 300 Win Mag. Um, below that, I love the... My favorite whitetail deer. He cartridge. just listed a couple that I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> love the, you know, nope, the, nope. <laughs> um, love the two seven five Rigby, which is mm-hmm. a seven by fifty seven Mauser. My favorite mm-hmm. whitetail cartridge right there. I shoot that a lot in a Ruger number one. You know, um, I love the old falling block actions. I love Ruger number ones. I'm a collector of Ruger number ones. I'm a collector of of the M seventy sevens and the Hawkeyes. Okay. You know, um, you know, for my international hunting. Pretty much my go-to has always been a 300 Win Mag or the 375 Ruger. Mm-hmm. I've used the 416 Ruger on some African safaris. I've also used the 450 I do like big calibers. I'm absolutely having a blast with the new Ruger Made Marlins, the yeah. 1895 models, the 4570. Yeah. I know they've made I was them. just going to ask you. Oh, listen, you know, the new series coming out this, this uh, third quarter, about half of it will be with the 1895 yeah. model. And um, one of the greatest things, I know it's very popular that that what Ruger's done for them is is threaded the barrel for suppressors, but I love things that go boom. I love recoil. I did put a suppressor (laughs) on mine because that thing's got big boom. When conditions get tough on a mountain hunt, your gear must be tougher. Making every opportunity count means selecting equipment that will not fail. Any condition, anywhere, Hornady Outfitter ammunition is designed to perform. Available in a wide range of cartridges from 243 to 375 Ruger. When you're looking for a hard hitting, deep penetrating bullet and cartridge that performs in the most rugged environments, look no further than Hornady Outfitter ammunition. So I, I do like big calibers, um, you know, being an ambassador for Ruger, just like you, you know, uh, sharing the love between all their products. Um, I'm very, uh, you know, I advocate for, but if I can pull that Ruger number one out of the, the safe and use it, I, I will, yeah. you know, uh, my grandfather was it's a nostalgic. Ruger number one. Yeah. My grandfather was a Ruger number one dealer, you know, and, and he, um, kind of just going back in time with him, he was, he he was a part of Sears Roebuck. I don't know if you remember the oh, chain yeah. of Sears yeah. Roebuck. So oh yeah. He uh, he was brought to Texas to open up the Sears Roebuck chain stores in Texas, and so Ruger Number Ones were sold back yeah. then in the store, and that's where his collection came from. Yeah. 
And uh, so since a little boy looking at his, you know, glass case, you know, mm-hmm. gun cases in his home, I just fantasized over all those number ones. You know, I wish I had all of them today. He got yeah. rid of some, you know, throughout his life. I do have some of them, but um, no, uh, having an absolute blast with the lever guns this year, whitetail deer hunting, elk hunting, nail guy hunting down on the Texas coast. Um, I'm going to Africa with the 1895 yeah. and going to hunt Cape Buffalo. Hornady's helping me uh, work up some uh, ammunition. I might be doing that. that in 2025. No, Come 24. Let's 24, do it together. I'm doing that. Yeah. Let's do it Come together. Come with us. I we would, have a spot in camp. I love Africa. Let's I, I do think it. I'd we s- have our date set. Let's do it. I'm going to hunt the Nyanai Conservancy this year. Yeah. In June. So and, when uh, you're, we'll, we'll, Man, I'm like legitimate serious. We talk to Yogi offline when we're done. I would love to. And you come with us. And I want you to come to Texas. It's Mozambique. It's going to be amazing. Oh, Mozambique. Love Mozambique. It's going to be amazing. Hot and humid. Great mosquito country. <laughs> wading through the swamps. That, you know, I'm, ho- I'm not going. You'll be in. hopping from lily pad to lily pad. I am not pad. going in a swamp <laughs> after a Cape Buffalo. I'm not doing it. Get ready. Next thing Isn't you know, I'm right, going to be Yogi? walking like this with my gun over my head through a swamp. And I'm going to be like, to, I hate you. I, <laughs> I went to Mo- I'll tell you a funny story about Mozambique. I don't Mozambique. want snakes and alligators or crocodiles. Like, I got <laughs> to go to Mozambique when it first opened after their war. Mm. And we were in the swamps. And... I am a big guy, you know, and these little trackers, you know, you're following around and you're wading through water and you're watching them hop from lily pad to lily pad. The lily pads are as big as this desk we're sitting here, you know, and they stay on top, you know, like they can land on one foot and it starts to sink, you know, and then they hop to another one and you're going to the deeper water. You think this, my big ass. You're like, boom. Oh, I hopped on one and I just, you know. (laughs) Straight down. (laughs) I was so frustrated, you know. Straight down. You know, you're wet all day from either the humidity and that's so much part of the adventure. But, no, Texas, you have to come to Texas. I've been yeah. asking you. To, I know you come to Texas, but we need to do a deer hunt. Oh, yes, you know, we do. Together. I would love to rattle up a buck for you. Ooh, that's and, like my um, favorite. And do it with a lever gun. Ask my husband. I'll be in a tree stand, and we'll be <laughs> white-tailed deer hunting. And when they're chasing, I'm like, da, 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 da. my teeth are chattering. Yeah. I get so jacked up. And yeah. he's like, you have to stop moving you're shaking the camera and i'm like da, 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 da. like i get like full-on like crackhead like <laughs> i'm the same way oh white tailed deer way. when they're chasing like you never you know what's them, gonna come when, in it's so when exciting they're basically from like and the, and the viewers can't see that but when they're almost as close as the cameras are yeah. to us right now <laughs> and the, and their noses are dripping and their eyes are this yeah. big you know and their hair is standing up i mean i've had some this year where i sit there and I had to like throw the horns at them like and like scare them off yeah. like because you know what the deer I wanted to shoot didn't want to have to shoot yeah it. I got me I got a cameraman you know and I've never had one really try to get us but I've had them close enough yeah. to where I was like that's enough that's good enough yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and, um, so I'd love for you to come down to Texas yeah but back on the guns yeah well, I guess you could just call me I just Old school, I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited about what's coming out. The 336 is out. Yeah, 30, I know my 30, husband's 30, 30. driving me nuts on the 336. You know, I can guarantee you're going to see me in the field in the whitetail world, you know, with that with that this next yeah. fall. And uh, excited to see what they what they produce going forward. Yeah. You know, so, but Africa, when I go, I'll have the 4570 and I'll have a 375 Ruger with me. Yeah, I'll have both. Yeah, so, same. Yeah, but uh, what about you, though? You do a lot more I, you know with where the other calibers 
are for so much of that? Your competition shooting that you really got. So into. the 4570, my husband's obsessed with. I, it's not that fun to shoot. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not that. I love the rifle. It's beautiful. Um, I haven't taken it hunting yet. It's it's a shorter range rifle, and it is. Where I live in Wyoming and you where we range. hunt in Oregon, yeah, tend to lean a little on range. So, um, you know, for me, uh, 6.5 PRC was really like, well, it started with 6.5 Creedmoor. Yep. And then when the PRC came out, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm all about PRC. And I hunted with that a lot last year, but, but kind of kicking back and forth between Creedmoor and PRC. And now that we have the 7 PRC, this year, I'm dying. That's coming out in a Ruger American. It's got the Go Wild camo, super, super sexy barrel. It's like this bronze coat color, fluted. It is just a beautiful yep. gun. I can't wait to hunt with it. So I'll be doing that this year or taking that out this year um, and, and hunting with that. And I'm, I'm excited about it. But I, I like to be able to... to get some extended range so yep. um you know if i need to make a 400 yard shot 500 yard shot i want to be able to, to take it if it's a, a good situation for it so um I, I tend to choose those calibers that do well in the wind and yep. you know give me some you know you're talking 308 I'm like man I'm, if i'm off on my wind wind call like two miles an hour the 308 at 500 yards eh, he has some problems <laughs> yeah. my 6.5 creed more or 6.5 prc yep. boom i'm still shooting right? right like exactly. so i like the versatility that some of those uh, better performing cartridges offer yeah. Um, you know, and Hornady makes ammo for, you know, PRC, Creedmoor, that's their baby, yep. right? And so um, uh, the advent of the precision rifle cartridge really has uh, kind of transformed so much in the shooting sports. And the Creedmoor, in just like, what, 13 years, the Creedmoor went, you know, everybody went from, from never hearing of a Creedmoor to it being yeah. in every available fire manufacturer, model, make. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's just really... It, revolutionized the shooting no, it industry. Has. It has. So those are kind of, for me, I've always been a Hornady shooter. And so... Um, me too. That's kind of the way it's always worked me for me. Too. So those are my babies, you know. Um, I and like I'm hearing it. great things on the, on the 7 PRC. I mean, so I do you think imagine. it's going to take over? I mean, you shoot th 7 PRC versus 300 Win Mag, I'm, I'm probably going to go with a 7. But, you know, right now you're not going to have the ammo availability. So there's always yeah. that, you know, there's always a trade-off with a new cartridge until it really catches on. That's so, right. you know, those tried and trues that you're talking about, like 30-06, I've got one of the a Ruger American .06 in Sweden because that's what we could find yeah. um, in a Ruger American. And we can find ammo for it. And it's legal for pigs and deer. So... I have a not six in Europe. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a lot of the reasons why I stick to those calibers. Being an international hunter that I've you know the last twenty years yeah. hunting internationally, that can be an issue. It is you an know, issue. You know, you to think about you know, um, even when the three seven five Ruger first came yeah. out, you know, it, it's it's a more prevalent to find now, yeah. like in Africa. But in the beginning, it wasn't. Well, you last know, year H when H &H I went, H and H, you'd find it all day long. You yeah. know, so um, those are things. Um, that I was mindful of and stuck with were yeah. it, for those type of hunts internationally. Like, <coughs> and for my long range hunts, the 300 yeah. Win Mag was mostly my go-to yeah. because if I got to Asia, I could find some yeah. 300 Win Mag if my ammo didn't show That's up. That's correct. You know? And there is, there's a lot with that. So like for when I went to South Africa last year, we brought bullets um, and the, actually one of the phs in camp reloaded ammunition yeah. for us so we you know i didn't have to mess with bringing ammo and, and kind right. of dealing with that so and then i left them in camp i was like here you guys go it's right. a gift um and so uh 
that's, you know, th there is, you know, ammunition and, and accessibility to ammunition if, heaven forbid, it gets lost or separated, you know. Because, like, some of those countries, you can't have your ammo in with your firearm. You have to have it locked separate. And that's there's right. rules. And, there's all and the different so countries. Yep. There's all kinds of variables of things that could go wrong. Absolutely. So um, I try to eliminate those variables as much as you can. But, uh, yeah, I tend to be on the cutting edge of... Let's shoot what's new and oh, absolutely! And, uh, but there, there is always a place for those old tried and trues, which is yeah. why they're still around. So yeah, exactly. Um, how does everybody find you on social media? Like, if they want to follow you, they want to, they sure. want to watch Trailing the Hunter's Moon. Where do people absolutely. do that? Absolutely, Trailing the Hunter's Moon is going to air. You know, airs on Pursuit Channel and on their digital platform Pursuit Up. But mm -hmm. Carbon TV as well. You and I share. Yeah, uh, carbon We're TV both platforms. Be pursuit carbon people. Now. Yes, that's, that's right. You told me. Yeah. yeah, so really happy with Julie yeah. McQueen is done with Carbon She's TV. Amazing. She's amazing. They've been very good to me yes. as far as promoting as yeah. well. On the social outlets, um, you know, Facebook, Trailing the Hunter's Moon, on uh, Instagram, Blake Barnett Hunting. I had more people kind of gravitate and find me by looking yeah. up my name that way, so we changed it. But it's 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 still the home of the Trailing the Hunter's Moon as well. Yeah. On Instagram and then YouTube, Trailing the Hunter's Moon. You will find us there. And that's pretty much it. You know, I'm not as big of a social influencer as the rock star you are. <laughs> um, but um, love to collaborate there, yeah. you know, where we can. Yeah. And um, that's uh, that's home for now. That's I don't yeah. think I'm going to venture beyond that. I mean, yeah. I'm very happy with Carbon TV. I'm yeah. very happy with the Pursuit Pursuit channel. Yeah, it's a great combo. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I know YouTube's growing, well, you know, is, is popular amongst the younger generation. Yeah. So we're there as well, you know. Instagram, I'm probably a little more active on the Instagram yeah. side than I am the Facebook side. Just uh, like to scroll through those feeds more than the other. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Well, look guys, us up, like us. Yes, <laughs> like them, look them up. We appreciate all of you for tuning in. And um, if you guys like this podcast, I want to invite you all. Please give us a five-star review wherever you listen. Uh, share the podcast. If you know somebody you think might enjoy listening to what we talked about today, please share that podcast. And then um, tell your friends, like, like subscribe, share. Um, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Wild and Uncut podcast. And we will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Wild and Uncut podcast. If you would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to my Pursue the Wild digital series on YouTube and follow me at Christy Titus on Facebook and Instagram.